0: hey everyone this is andy again with one of these bonus one-on-one episodes uh today we have a bit of a different show i talked to the writer wendy lou uh, no relation though we do have the same last name uh wendy's based in the bay area and she wrote a book called abolish silicon valley that was published in march of this year Uh, So Wendy did not start off in the world of like leftist academia or law or journalism like the other people who talk on this podcast. Uh, She was trained actually as a software engineer who dabbled in working at Google. She did the startup thing for a while. And then she went from being a true believer in Silicon Valley to someone who became very disillusioned with big tech and is now a critic of the political economy and the culture of Silicon Valley. Um, So I think she can provide a unique perspective on a lot of questions that we've heard from listeners over the past few months. Questions such as, you know, developing your own political identity in your 20s, reconciling a very technical STEM education with this new exposure to like political, cultural, economic criticism, the kind we have on this show, coming to terms with the fact that you were raised uh, with an overemphasis on education and professional achievement, maybe because your family is Asian and professional class, maybe not, um, and then realizing there are problems with that way of looking at the world. And of course, kind of talking about how all of this overlaps and intersects with you know, like sex, gender, racial identity, and identity politics in the corporate world. So it's a bit of a personal conversation. We get into a lot of this stuff. Um, As a trade-off, for time reasons, we didn't really get into some of the other things I was hoping to discuss. Uh, For instance, things she's written about, such as the economics of the gig economy. Prop 22 in California is coming up in a few weeks. Um, She's written about uh, UBI and Andrew Yang, and she's also written about tracking the burgeoning labor movement in the tech industry. Um, But we can put links to her writing and her articles on those topics in the show notes. As usual, we're on Twitter at TTSGPod by email. We're time to say goodbye at gmail.com. Please share, subscribe, tell friends and family to subscribe, and, you know, thanks for listening. Okay, on to the show. Time to say goodbye. Bye. Yeah, so the way I kind of try to explain the book to
1: people is that. I started out as a believer in a way that is pretty embarrassing and pretty naive and like maybe way too earnest. Um, And then I ended up being extremely disillusioned Uh, and not just of (laughs) Silicon Valley, but of like everything, which is, you know, just like this whole, this whole dumb system that we live under. Uh, I've just become extremely frustrated and horrified by everything that I see happening around me, especially like at a time like this, right? Where, I don't know, month eight or whatever of the pandemic and things yeah. are just getting worse and worse so yeah, yeah.
0: for sure so you begin with your, your your quest i guess when you're 12 or 13 i guess that's like high school middle age and you begin to program learn how to code yourself you go to college in montreal right mcgill yeah and you kind of do this basically to me it kind of felt like like the plot of like the silicon valley tv show right where you kind of do the startup you have those ambitions you and your friends kind of Oh, and there's this interesting uh, chapter where you actually had the sort of golden ticket to work at Google, but you were sort of already early on turned off by the corporate culture of it. So you turn that down, you kind of go for the startup, and then you say around 2016, your startup was sort of, uh, you were kind of getting sick of it, kind of like waiting for it to happen at the same time Trump gets elected. And this kind of, I don't know if you want to make Trump the primary explanation, but It kind of coincides with your sort of political awakening, is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, so to your point about HBO Silicon Valley, part of the reason my book maybe felt like it is because we were actually watching the show uh, as a founding team, and we thought it was kind of funny, but also kind of just like too close to the truth to be funny, so we had a difficult relationship with it. But yeah, I mean, so I guess I'll step back a bit and just say that from the beginning, from the time I first started programming... Um, I just had a very idealized understanding of the industry, one that was mostly based on based on wishful thinking, as opposed to having any understanding, critical understanding of the history of just labor history, especially or of how the imperatives of capitalism. I only saw the radical utopian potential. I fell in love with you know the open source movement, the free software movement, Creative Commons. I was like, oh yeah, intellectual property sucks. Tech is the future. Tech is going to abolish intellectual property, um, and I didn't really understand how that didn't actually make any sense. Like I just, you know, I was really naive. I didn't, I didn't read history. I, yeah. and you know, I, I just thought like, oh, these, these um, hackers who are saying they're going to make the world a better place. Hell yeah,
0: that's mm-hmm. awesome.
1: I can't, I can't wait. So when I got an offer from Google um, to work there full time, it was, it was. So I did an internship first and then I got the full-time offer. At first I thought, you know, I, I, I should be doing this because like this is the best the tech industry has to offer, right? That was kind of the message that had found its way into my head and I didn't really have any sort of counter narrative to that. And so I thought, well, if I don't do this, then what else am I supposed to do? So I spent some time interviewing with other companies just because I... Didn't have a great time at Google <laughs> for a bunch of reasons, which we can go into later if if you want. But yeah. I was just like not super impressed. I didn't really want to go back. And in, while I was interviewing at other companies, it so happened that um, some friends from McGill and I just kind of decided to start this company together. And then I thought, well, let, I'll just do that because this sounds so much fun, so much m- more fun than working at Google and we had all uh, a bunch of us had worked um, on hackathon projects together, and so I wanted to capture that hackathon spirit and just turn it into a company. And so, just to, to make things clear, it's not like we had a great idea. It's not like we had a mission and <laughs> wanted to change the world. It was really just like we really like working on projects together. We want to keep doing that, and we'll find some way to do that. And we thought that was normal um, because so we applied to Y Combinator, which is a very well-known startup accelerator, and that is one of the things that they explicitly allow. They don't mind if found founding teams don't actually have an idea as long as they're good at working together and are passionate huh. and are willing to give it their all basically. So we thought that what we were doing was not only okay, but quite normal and maybe even good. Maybe that was, yeah. you know, the right way to start a company. Um, uh, and we, we did that for quite a while before kind of, uh, Everything just came crashing down around us. So the business model we landed on was one that took data from the Twitter and Instagram APIs in a kind of gray area. Um, You could could definitely make the case that it was not allowed by their (laughs) terms of service. But we felt like, well, a lot of tech companies start out that way. They started doing something that's like kind of illegal, like Uber, Airbnb, Mm, all these companies that just, you know, they operate under this like... Gray zone of legality, but that's okay because when they get bigger, they can change the laws. So that's kind of how (laughs) we justified it to ourselves. Um, And then eventually, though, the APIs started closing up, and not only in terms of their terms of service, but also in terms of like the actual access to it. And Mm. I remember, you know, when Instagram announced all these changes to their API, I think partly as a result of the Cambridge Analytical scandal. That was Mm. when we thought, oh well, you know, we don't, we can't do this anymore. Our business model never really worked, but it definitely doesn't work. And so we thought, well, let's find something else. You know, by that point, we'd already been doing the startup for quite a while, like over a year. And we were pretty much invested in it. And we really wanted to keep doing it. And we thought, well, we could find another business model, right? We can just, we can just find another business model. So we tried, uh, didn't quite work there. It turns out it's very hard to find a business model that is something that people will want to invest in and that is also actually making the world a better place. Right. So I think in the course of that, just like doing research about the industry, um, about all the potential uses of our technology that we could that we could find, I just found myself really confused because I thought, well, I thought mm-hmm. it would be easier to do something meaningful. Um, yeah. And the more I looked around it, the more I paid attention to the news of just the, the tech industry in general, there were a lot of stories of sexual harassment, discrimination, um, all these startups that kind of crashed. Theranos is a big one. Right. Uh, actually, when when Theranos was kind of first first like publicly applauded, I remember thinking, "This is amazing. I wish mm-hmm. I, I want to be Elizabeth Holmes. That's so cool." Yeah. Um, right. But yeah, I think uh, around the same time, maybe 26, 20, early early to late twenty sixteen is just all these bad things kept happening. And I thought, well, I don't really know what I believe in anymore. And so Trump's Mm -hmm. election was definitely part of the catalyst, but not because, not in itself, it was more that once I realized that the world didn't work the way I thought it did, then I spent more time paying attention to the news, paying more attention to history too. And then I realized that it wasn't just Trump. It, it, you know, it's not just about like this one person who's elected president is the problem. And once he's out of office, everything's fixed. I came right. to the other conclusion, which is that this whole thing is broken, has been for a really long time. And I didn't notice because I was in my little bubble and I didn't really yeah. care about anything other than myself. So that's yeah. kind of a lo- long summary. Of, no, 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 uh, that's you know. great.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And in, in the book, you I don't know if this is just for like narrative purposes, but you kind of uh, portray it perhaps a little too cleanly as sort of before. Um, like 2015, 16, you you say you were very vaguely aware of politics, but like you didn't care about like the election in Canada when you're in college, for instance. Um, But then there's this kind of pretty sharp shift to like enrolling in a master's program and just reading you like a a book a day, almost, you say. And I'm always interested in this because um, also like to back up, I think I told you this. I actually bought a copy of your book and sent it to my brother who is in Silicon Valley. And I don't think he's, like, a Peter Thiel type at all. He actually probably has pretty good politics. But reading your book, I was thinking, like, um, I feel like this book is two halves of, like, my family or my brother and myself. Like, my brother did the tech thing. He wasn't, like, trying to make as much money as possible, but he, like, majored in computer science, and he's in that world. Um, and I was, like, in the other half doing things like reading, like, Marxism and critical social philosophy. And we finally, I read a book which uh, also has the last name Lou of someone who has, actually has like both sides of my family, uh, of my brother and my dynamic. And I was like, wow, this is incredible. Um, but I guess looking back, I, I, I am curious how, is it really the case that you had like, you were very apolitical before 2016, or are you, are you being too modest? Like maybe you already had these sort of, uh, sort of inklings of doubt about, you know, capitalism or whatever you want to wind up calling it, um, even as you were doing the Silicon Valley thing, right? But, so like earlier you talked about how you were into hacker culture. Um, which makes sense, but then you're also in the book, you say you, you were into, I don't think you mentioned Peter Thiel, but the sort of like kind of Ayn Rand types, uh, you said you were at the Fountainhead, you said you admired Elizabeth Holmes types. I mean, was there a sort of, looking back, do you, do you feel like maybe, like how did you reconcile those two, I guess, is, is the question, or do you feel like it was just sort of a mishmash of different, different um, dreams?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic question. I don't think anyone's actually asked me that before. I definitely <laughs> had, like you say, like inklings. Um, but they never really connected into a cohesive whole, and you know, like I said before, I just didn't really have a good understanding of just how the world worked, and and so I think the, the inklings they only remained that, you know, my interest in open source, for example, I I talked in the book about how I w- I went to this conference, um in, in Portland for two years in a row. That's this o- big open source convention, and even just like in the two years that I went, it felt like there's a big difference between the level of like corporate I don't know marketing that between like the two the two years and that wasn't really what interested me in you know the open source community I liked the fact that it was a community I liked that it was not you know corporate and that it was about like people wanting to build something cool not like Microsoft swooping in and saying like hey you should buy our technology so I think there were definitely I had some instincts that were maybe anti-corporate but I didn't really understand how the things I liked like open source were connected to the things I didn't yeah. like like these big corporations I didn't see how one could use the other and you know I just I didn't see the the contours of power I don't know if that's like a good way of explaining it yeah. but I think the biggest thing I've learned in the last few years as I was reading all these books as I started going to all these events and like meeting all these other people who care about the same things is to see the world as shaped by power the way sand dunes are shaped by the wind and to recognize that you cannot understand history you cannot understand um, any sort of relationship between anything without understanding the power dynamics and you can analyze that power in a lot of ways and one of them is through you know the kind of classical political economy um, the wage labor relationship who owns the means of production whatever that's that's one way and that's a really important way and that's just something that I had just never really thought about before i think at at most i maybe touched on you know feminist theory or like just theories of race but in a very in a very shallow superficial way i didn't understand how any of that was connected to the primary source of power in the modern world which is you know precisely ownership over the means of production and so i think yeah. I, once i started to see see things that way it really does feel like night and day uh, and yeah. I just feel like a totally different person now. And when I go back and read my <laughs> old writings, which I had to do while writing this book, like I yeah. wrote a diary entry every day when I was doing my startup. And so I went back and read it. I was like, wow, I I almost can't recognize who I was because, you know, it's like it's like like, like talking to a different person. And it, it's kind of difficult, actually, to try to grapple with that and to recognize that I don't believe the same things that I used to. Um And even especially those things that I thought were such a core part of me, like this belief in meritocracy, believing that if I just worked hard and, um, I don't know, accomplished great things, then that's all I would have to do. Like that is the path to self-actualization, just like being really good at something and working on that. And now I think, well, that doesn't feel very satisfying. Like I don't want to live in a world where even if I work really hard and do a good job or something and and I get paid really well, then I like I don't want to only have that as the thing I yeah. care about. I've started to realize that like, well I live in a world with a lot of other people. And I also want them to do well. And you know, I don't I don't want other yeah. people to suffer too. And so it is a very <laughs> different way of looking at things. And um it's it's hard sometimes. Like I get yeah. No for sure. I, I don't know how to deal with it all the time.
0: Yeah. No, I totally relate to a lot of that. Honestly you just talked about a lot of things I wanted to talk about. So we might talk in circles more than in a linear fashion here but i would say that it sound what it sounds like is you had this sort of aesthetic sense that there were good things and bad things but it, you would you could, you could perhaps look back and think it was like superficial it's sort of like a lot of people are hipsters right mm-hmm. they're like i don't like big corporations i like to wear like you know like yeah I, I like to listen to indie music or whatever but for them it's like an aesthetic it's a style it's a lifestyle choice um and i think you're probably not giving yourself enough credit because a lot of people stay at that level and just kind of but then they don't really question, you know, the the sort of the deeper foundations of, like, what is capitalism, what is a political economic system, et cetera. And, you know, I didn't have the same, I didn't have necessarily the same trajectory as you. You know, I was doing humanities from the beginning. Uh, I do want to talk about that humanities versus STEM uh, difference. Uh, but I think there's something happening in the humanities that's similar. Uh, so you, you talked about how, you know, I've heard stories that like Silicon Valley is like woke, right, and it's into like, a lot of people talk, a lot of uh, from what i've heard like they teach white fragility in a lot of these corporations now and there's talk of like you know being paid paying attention to like sex gender and race you know ethnicity type stuff and but i assume like political economy is a little bit off limits right and i think something similar happened in my own education in the humanities where again everything was about you know racism and sexism and you know not not discounting that stuff, right? But for, I probably similar as you, once I took that class that made me read Marx or, you know, about capitalism, it took me a while too, but it also like changed the way I I think about the world. And I do think it's not just a question of being converted to a new like religion. It's just about taking that aesthetic sense that you probably already had and then going deeper, right? Because some people can be exposed to this stuff and, you know, just like personality wise or like in terms of like how they think about the world, they just it won't click with them. Right, so there probably was some sort of um, elective affinity, right? Be- yeah. Between this stuff.
1: Yeah, right. and and I guess like there was some part of me that did care about other people because I think that's something that can't really be taught. It was just like, I think yeah. before I didn't realize how much um, I don't know. Th- so I cared about other people in an abstract sense, and I kind of assumed that I didn't have to do anything, that the system just kind of worked, and that if other for other people that turned out okay, they just had to work hard. Um, and I think the, the biggest difference that, um, in what I believe now is that now I think, well, the system is set up to fail a lot of people and it's, it's not designed yeah. to, to help them or to allow them to flourish, um, yeah. for the, you know, the vast majority of people is like, they're under the power of something, something else. And now, yeah, I think that I feel like that's very, very important to me. Like recognizing that, recognizing that this is something I care about and something I, I don't know if I have the power to do anything, but something I, you know, definitely want to think about. And that is a big difference because, you know, if you're, when you're like, when you're like 22, you just graduated from college, most of the time, um, if you haven't been awakened to this kind of way of seeing the world, the best you're going to want to do is try to carve out a good life for yourself, right? It's like maybe you have parental pressure, maybe you have student loan debt, and you just want to, like, get a career and climb up the career ladder. And that is definitely something that... um, I felt I felt like I was trapped within for a while, um, mm-hmm. and and so yeah, maybe it's like maybe everyone goes through that phase, or a lot of people yeah. go through that phase. But at, yeah, at some point, you know, if you see the world in a different way, I guess you can find your way out of it. And I'm I'm really glad I did. Like I'd like to be yeah. clear, I'm really happy. I don't see the world the same way, even though it is harder. <laughs> I'm angry yeah. a lot. Yeah. I am, yeah. I'm very sad and angry a lot, but. It uh-huh. definitely feels more more true than the kind mm-hmm. of lie I've been telling myself in the past.
0: One, one, one of my first questions was, you know, I was going through your book again this morning, and um, I forgot that you begin not, you know, with this critique of the tech industry, but a whole chapter about when you began to program when you were 12 or 13. The, the main theme is about being a woman or young mm-hmm. woman in this case. Right. And all the way through college, realizing that this is not a space that's friendly for women or non-white people, basically. Um, and I guess I'm curious, like, this could be like an editorial question, like why you began the book that way, or more of a, you know, just a conceptual question. Like, what is the connection there between being, you know, you obviously like doubly not, not a white man, like doubly marginalized. And, and then the, tr- the trajectory from that to like, where you wind up by the end of the book, which is not really about your biography or your identity. It's more this like very systemic criticism, right? Um, so yeah, so I'm just kind of like wondering why you decided to begin the book that way.
1: Yeah, that is a great question. And, you know, I think I've, I've read some reviews that, um, where people think like maybe it's a weakness in the book and, you know, I kind of agree. The reason I started it out that way, um, even though I don't have like a very, you know, fleshed out critique of sexism or racism by the end is just because I think it's key to the path I took. I think Mm -hmm. part of the reason I had the beliefs that I did, uh, the part of the reason I went through this Ayn Randian phase and just like wanted to become, you know, the the best programmer ever is because I was aware of the pressure that I would be under. Not necessarily in a conscious way, but I kinda of looked around and thought, like, oh, this is the way women are treated. I guess I just have to be really good. Um and so, yeah, I think maybe like if I if I'd written the book today, I probably would have drawn that out a little more because I don't think it's I think it's a, maybe like a little too a little too Um, implied when I I don't just probably wasn't enough. But yeah, I think it's just that the part of the reason I had this, I don't know, really stubborn, like annoying belief in meritocracy is because I felt like I had to because I didn't want to be seen as one of one of those girls who just Mm -hmm. complains all the time because I saw a lot of that. I saw a lot of people being treated like women, people of color being treated horribly simply because they questioned the way things were. And it was much easier for me to think, oh, well, I just don't want to be like them than it was for me to think, oh, they might be right. And therefore, I need to change my whole value system. And so yeah. I took the easy way out. Um, and I think, I think that's probably true for a lot of people who had similar phases of, I don't know, spending a lot of time on the Internet as a kid or going on 4chan or whatever. It's mm-hmm. so easy to just kind of um, accept as received wisdom all of the, the culture that you see and just think, okay, well, yeah, there must be something to it, especially when you're young and impressionable and you don't have like a stable foundation elsewhere. Like for me, it's not like I had that many other people to talk to about this. I was like, well, yeah. if these guys are being rude to this woman online, okay, maybe that's just because she did something wrong. Hmm. And, and so I think, you know, I, I do think this is fairly common. Uh, and then back to your point about the tech industry you know teaching white fragility or whatever and i think i you know here's the thing i think that is actually quite bad i think it's i think liberal identity politics are very harmful because they foster radicalization in the you know in the bad direction because <laughs> it causes resentment because when you have this kind of message that just doesn't doesn't really get at what's actually going on and tries to i don't know just like that makes some people think that they're being treated like the enemy then it'll make them resentful. It'll make them lash out at other people, even, that you know, which doesn't make sense because, like, uh, if you have male software engineers lashing out at female software engineers, none of them really has any power in this. Like, they're, mm-hmm. they're lashing out at the wrong person. I think it's there's a parallel to the way, say, racism has been, you know, a huge factor in divisions among workers. And it's like, mm-hmm. this is, you're yeah. aiming yourself, you're aiming at the wrong target here. So I've definitely noticed a lot of, right-wing uh radicalization within the tech industry and it's it's not that i think like you know right right fragility is to blame for this but i definitely think (laughs) it doesn't help because the the narrative that that kind of like liberal identity based critique um is pushing it doesn't really create a space that allows people who are not included in that message to feel like they can be part of something else and so this is why i think like you know, the, part of why the left has been so appealing to me is as I read more like leftist critiques of the tech industry, I didn't feel like it was saying that I was a bad person. I didn't feel like it was saying like, oh, you know, all you tech workers, you all just have to like go die because you're terrible. Instead, <laughs> I felt like there was a much more robust and um, inspiring vision of a different world where tech workers are allowed to flourish just like everybody else um, and are allowed to do so in a way that is much more optimal for the, the society as a whole, and so, yeah, yeah, I th- yeah maybe going a little off topic here. Where I think there, so yeah, part of the reason I started my book that way is because I kind of wanted to reflect on that a little more about yeah. how the experience of, um, I don't know, a certain kind of toxicity in the industry can contribute to people's ideology later on, both in you know in a good way and in a bad way. And for me, it definitely yeah. was more more bad than good.
0: But it also seems like implied there is, uh, you know, at first you feel like the sort of, I don't know how you put this, this like gender resentment is producing almost like a right wing reaction from yourself. Would you also say there's a different way in which your position as a sort of outsider also position you to kind of have this eventually a critique of of kind of seeing Silicon Valley for what it is rather than feeling like you're completely... You know, kind of swept up in the tide of it, and you earlier just you know you're just talking about quote unquote liberal version of identity politics. Are you suggesting there is perhaps a different type of identity politics that is not bound up with with resentment, where you can you know embrace like both you know your your identity as woman, but also or your, your social position. Let's say as woman, but also like your your participation in something else. In which in which case, like I would not be threatened, right? As as a man.
1: Yeah, definitely, uh, and and I think. You know i'm not the best theorist on the topic of identity politics i still have a lot of learning to do but i i do think that the formulation that i've seen advanced in some sectors of the left feels just so much more compelling to me than mm-hmm. the kinds that you see more commonly in like corporate tech circles um yeah. and i i do remember you know as i as I was still kind of new to the tech industry and like reading feminist critiques of tech, there, there's some good stuff in there. Don't get me wrong. But I think there's definitely some of it that feels very much like lean in feminism, you know, yeah. that kind of variety where it's like, Oh, we just need a few more women in positions of power that completely allied structural analysis and doesn't recognize how some of these behaviors are not, they're not intrinsic to Identity of the people—they're, they're—you mm-hmm. they're, know—produced by the systems that allow certain people to rise and that um, concentrate power among others. And it's just—I I think there. So part of the reason that I never found these critiques very compelling is just because it didn't feel like they had the whole answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, when I started. I don't know, just like coming across a, a a leftist conception of identity politics, and I realize I'm not explaining this well, but um, I did enjoy your episode uh, with mm-hmm. with Merlin, where you talked <laughs> about this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, and so it, it just felt so much more expansive and interesting uh, and insightful yeah. that yeah. you know the like there are ways of thinking about identity and racism and sexism and other forms of discrimination that aren't purely about designating someone as bad. And saying, yeah, "Oh, you know, right. you, you need to you need to repent. You need to atone right. for your sins." And instead of right. saying, "Like we want to build a world where we can all kind of flourish," um, and in order to do that, we need to pay attention to material conditions, yeah. so that people are not taking out their anger on others on, on direct, you know, in directions that are actually yeah. not helpful. They're o- orthogonal to them achieving a better life. But I, yeah. I do think, you know, we have to look at the the kind of political discourse that we have now. And I, I think it's, I think that is actually just awful. It's, it's really, really awful. Um, and especially as, as it pertains to critiques of diversity, um, you know, the lack of yeah. diversity in these tech companies. I think that's just, it's, um, it, it feels harmful, I think. Um, and I don't know if there's a good solution to that. I think maybe this is just the best we can hope for, for, in terms of diversity initiatives under neoliberalism, yeah. but it's just, you know, whenever I read, like, a, a corporate statement, it's like, oh, we only have this many women. We plan to do better. We're going to fund uh, these schools or these scholarships um, or whatever, and it's just like, uh, okay, sure, but, like, let's let's start talking about power, right? Let's, let's yeah. start talking about um, what the wages of these women will be when they actually enter the workforce and who gets to decide that, and let's talk about... You know the sexual harassment they're going to face, and you know what avenues yeah. they have for changing that. Let's talk about the kind of products they're going to be working on that are probably going to be inherently, you know, sexist, racist, discriminatory, that they have no control over. And so I'm not, yeah. And so I think um, there's a way in which the discussions of diversity within tech companies are kind of like maybe intentionally clouding the point because the people mm-hmm. who are you know, who are responsible for these rules, they, they're they not really allowed to question the status quo. If you're working at Google or something as, like, the diversity HR person, then, you know, your job isn't to say, like, oh, let's look at, let's look at um, how Google is taking money from the U.S. military, whatever your job is to say. Like, well, I just need to increase yeah. these numbers. Um, and, you know, so so, you know, just to, like, make it clear, I don't think these people are bad people. I don't want to put any blame on them, but I think this is kind of the state we're in where the direction of critique of uh, some of the like diversity initiatives in the tech industry is not the same direction as the one that i'm in- i'm interested in which is that yeah. of you know just not trans not just transforming silicon valley not just looking at the composition of people and these companies but remaking the the balance of power in society as a whole yeah. and so i think yeah that's also part of the reason why i didn't actually go much further with um critiques of you know sexism or racism within the industry just because like that's not really where my focus is and there there are a lot of other people who've written really really good books on those topics but i kind of just wanted to talk about you know society as a whole why does it suck let's make it better
0: i i did tell you you know one of my reactions to reading the book was um uh i I was very curious about your background the other the other identity poll i guess would be um, you know, you're, you have the same last name, so I know you're of Chinese descent to some degree, um, to some, to, in some variety. Um, I, in the book itself, there's almost no mention of it except for one scene. You attend the massive November, 2018 Google walkout and you talk about on the way back, you pass by, I think, a uh, strike with house, uh, hotel workers. Mm-hmm. Is that right? And you speak Mandarin to them. And that's, as far as I could tell, the only mention that you're Asian in the entire book. Um, uh, so I have questions about that, but I don't know, Do you, you can, I'm also just kind of curious to the extent you're comfortable, you know, like kind of telling, telling us your background, your yeah, family's had, background. Yeah,
1: yeah, sure. Yeah. So I think part of the reason I didn't write about it in the book is because I just didn't really know what to say. I don't, I just didn't think I had any really insightful thoughts on that. And so I didn't know how to include it without it feeling like arbitrary, you know, useless biographical information. So I kind of struggled with that. I did think about, is it weird if I like, don't talk about it, but I don't know. Um, so just quick biographical sketch. Uh, I was born in China. I moved to Canada when I was five with my parents, um, and then just no mostly spoke China. English. Uh, I was I was born in Binzhou in Shandong province. Okay. Uh, but I lived in Beijing for and uh, for most of my time that I was in China, uh, and then yeah, I grew up in Canada. I grew up in mostly like Asian American communities until I was twelve, and then my parents got divorced and. I moved with my mom to Montreal and we didn't really know many Asian people there. I think that was the first time I felt like, Oh, I'm Asian and that's different and it's not good. Like, you Mm -hmm. know, it, it, it didn't, it didn't mark me out, um, as just different. It marked me out as like different and inferior was kind of how I felt about it. You know, all the, all the, all the cool people, they were, they were all, none of them were Asian. Um, -hmm. and, and so I just felt like from that time, you know, when I was 12 and I, started feeling like, oh, I don't really belong here. I don't really know how to talk to people. Um, I feel, I suddenly feel so different. Um, that was around the same time I started spending a lot of time online because I had nothing better to do. I had you no know, one to hang out with. And so I think that definitely fed into it. But a lot of that was contingent because back in Toronto, which is where I lived for before that, I had a lot of friends and they were all Asian.
0: I've never been to Montreal. Is it really the case that you're like the only Asian or non-white student in a class or...
1: I mean, there were some other non white students um but it was like just looking at the kind of hierarchy in in my class of you know who was who was popular, it was very clear that you know it was the white girls who were popular um and so I think that was definitely the first time I really had to grapple with that on a personal level and think about what that meant for me um how do I deal with it and i it probably warped warped my identity a little bit like it made me feel really bad about myself and I didn't really know what to do about it so yeah that's that's kind of I, yeah so I definitely you know my identity definitely feeds into what the journey I subsequently took in terms mm-hmm. of like spending a lot of time online but yeah I think when I wrote the book I was just like I don't know how to talk about it yeah so yeah and then later on um like in the scene I mentioned in in the book uh, of being on that pick a line and, you know, recognizing that, oh, all these housekeepers, they're all, they're all just Chinese. Like they could just like be my mother or, yeah. or something. I think that hit home for me just how much identity, um, is a thing like beyond the level of interpersonal relationships, it's also this massive structural thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, there is a reason that a lot of these housekeepers are Chinese, just like there's a reason yeah. a lot of housekeepers are, uh, other staff are like l- Latino or, or black or whatever. And I think, yeah, um, having that personal connection and just like literally seeing all these women on the paint line really made it hit home for me because I'd read, a, I'd read about, you know, structural racism. I kind of like understood it on a theoretical level, but yeah, I think it's recognizing that it's, it's not just something that happens to other people. It's something that could happen to you. And it's only, you know, just due to these factors totally out of control, uh, out of your yeah. control that like you're, you're not, you know, in a different position, I think that's, that's, uh, that was like a really, really important moment for me. Um, And then since then, I've started reading a lot about Asian American uh, relations and just immigration, the history of Chinese immigration, especially to the US is just mind blowing. Um, And
0: yeah, I, oh my
1: god, yeah, so I did a tour of the Chinese Historical Society Museum in San Francisco recently, in Chinatown. That was amazing. I did not know there were so many Chinese people in San Francisco and that so many of them had come, you know, just like during Uh, the gold rush to build the railroads.
0: At one point, California was like 80% Chinese. Like, I I remember reading that a few years ago, like, what the fuck? (laughs) Um,
1: I I read Ken Liu's book, uh, The Paper Menagerie. Most of them are about some sort of like Chinese, um, like a combination of maybe space based sci-fi and like Chinese myth. Yeah. There's one about Google, kind of about Google, which I didn't actually like because I thought it was like, you know, I, I, it's it was like a black mirror episode, but the rest of the stories were really quite novel for me. And a lot of them talked about the history of Chinese immigration to the U S in a way that just felt very raw and personal yeah. um, and horrible because yeah. uh, there's a story that's about Idaho. And, you know, I looked it up later because I was so shocked, but at yeah, one point right, the yeah. population of Idaho was 28% Chinese
0: yeah. And now and it's, these, like... like there these, like, incidents where they just, like, wipe them out, right?
1: Yeah, because they weren't allowed to bring women. They yeah. weren't allowed to immigrate. Women were, weren't allowed to immigrate. And also they weren't allowed to marry other, like, white women. And so it's, like, well, they're just yeah. going to die off. And, yeah, I think <laughs> recognizing that, like, th- these are things that... It's not just a matter of um, recognizing okay. that there, this wasn't just a matter of, like, interpersonal conflict. It was, There mm-hmm. were these legal codes that defined... What yeah. they were allowed and weren't allowed to do, and you know, I I grew up uh, in like a pretty privileged life, right? Like I was living in Canada. Um, my parents were like they were eh, not great, but like eh, middle class. Uh, you know, it was it yeah. wasn't it wasn't too bad, and I never really thought of myself as having any barriers, other than the the my own limitations in terms of what I could achieve, and I just kind of assumed like, oh, if I'm like you know the best programmer, I will be rewarded. Yeah. And I never thought like. And it took me a really long time to recognize that, oh, well, that's actually not true for me. And it's also not true for a lot of other people. And it hasn't been true for them. And if I'd been born, I don't know, 100 years ago, it would have been so yeah. much more not true for me. For and sure. so, you know, just recognizing like the that our all of our paths in this world are shaped by all these forces outside of our control. I think that was part of what radicalized me, and it's something I still think about a lot today, just knowing that yeah. it's not a matter of individual merit, no matter what Ayn Rand says.
0: Well, first off, the one, the one thing I was thinking when you were just talking just now is you talk about, you know, I think there's an analogy with your experience with being a woman in the tech world in the sense that it kind of hardened your sense of minimizing it, right? And I think something a lot of, um, I'm also kind of new to the Asian-American stuff probably like you i was sort of like eh, don't want to think about it too much um but as you know there's there's a concept um uh, that uh, the the novelist kathy park or the writer kathy park is called minor feelings and it seems to have kind of resonated with a lot of asian americans which is that a lot of asian americans are kind of told our feelings about being asian aren't, aren't too minor to be talked about um and i think that's that's a nice name for like probably something that resonates with a lot of us which is that and probably we get it from our parents also that, you know, it's not our job to talk about, you know, to portray ourselves as victims or as different, and our job is to assimilate and to fit in. And I don't know if your parents felt that, talk, talk that way. I definitely, I'm still looking back and thinking about, like, the small ways my parents would signal, like, assimilation is good instead of, um, like, you know, uh, instead of, like, some sort of, like, strong Asian pride or anything like that. Uh, but, I mean, the other thing I was thinking was, or the thing I was curious about, though, is that, so I, I I get that you know living going to high school in Montreal a lot of white people right, but I assume that in your other tra- your, your your longer trajectory of going into tech you must have encountered so many other middle class educated engineering type Asian Americans um, is that so in your book for instance in your in your in your in your in your story of like moving out to California you know I've, if anyone who's been to the Bay knows it's super Asian I mean did you did you feel sort of like this is a world you could just immediately jump into or did you still kind of have feel like I should keep a distance I don't want to until that moment with those hotel workers you were sort of kind of suppressing some of these some of these feelings about your identity
1: Yeah um and and just to kind of clarify I actually spent the last 2 years of high school in Beijing um I went
0: So you must have really it, <laughs> like a, like a, one of those uh, international schools
1: Yeah exactly yeah cuz you know because of my parents divorce that after a certain point I just long story but I had to move back with my dad Um, and so I lived with him for the last two years of high school finished high school there and that was like yeah the first time I had been I was around all these other Asian people again you know after leaving Toronto and I definitely did a lot better there I was like I was so much happier Um, and I think that actually helped me become less of a shitty person just like being able to talk to other people who you know I felt like they understood me and it was, it was a very different environment. Um, yeah. and, and then, yeah, to your question about, about, like, the Bay Area tech scene, you know, I'm not really that interested in, like, just making friends based on, I guess, identity issues. I think the thing that animates me right now is, is politics and mm-hmm. how that relates to tech, sure, but it's just especially politics. And so, you know... I've, like, met some really nice people who are, like, software engineers or whatever and maybe share similar identity characteristics as me where I'm, like, I, we have nothing to talk about. Like, we have nothing in common. Sure. I'm I'm right, just... Yeah, yeah. I have become so weird. Like, <laughs> I've just, just become, like, a really weird person with very unusual <laughs> interests. And I think I'm just, like... I'm probably not very fun to be around unless you're also, like, you know, similar to me. So, yeah, and maybe this is a problem with me. Like, I think about that a lot. It's, like, is this bad that I, like... Can't really talk to normal people the same way I used to, but I don't know. I think this is just something I have to figure out for myself. No, I
0: mean I think part of the, the one of the ongoing themes of this podcast is actually trying to break down the Asian into the sub subcategories. Uh, we actually got a like you know the boba Asian, the tech Asian, and the the you know the the three lefty Asians who actually run the podcast. But and we actually got a question. I don't know if you listened to this episode a few weeks ago about. Um, someone wrote in about being a STEM Asian as if it's like a species, right? The STEM Asian <laughs> versus the humanities Asian, and how um, there was the sense of that like, uh, they just were on a totally different trajectory. And I think we were getting a lot of listeners who are probably like have left this political interest, but were kind of always told their entire life to like privatize it, right? And in the meantime, like, major in operations management or whatever by their parents and i i mean i knew someone like that in college right who who had i he was in debate with me or and he had all these like he knew so much about politics but he was just doing the the degree that his parents wanted him to right um uh did you i mean do you do you get do you is that the sense you also got like being in tech that like most asian americans there are sort of i mean why do you think why do you think they follow that path like because to me it's kind of an interesting question like what why is there such a disproportionate representation in tech? Is it because their parents tell them to go into engineering and computer science? Or is there, um, you know, and, and, and do you feel like those those types of um, Asian Americans are sort of kind of told to be apolitical and and are kind of, is it, is it just because of our parents? Um, I assume, I don't know about your parents, but I assume if they wanted to leave China and come to Canada, they were sort of not happy with communism <laughs> and, and, and they believed in like the market and all that.
1: Yeah, my my dad left to do a PhD um, at the yeah. University of Alberta in chemistry, and so he was always very insistent that I should get a PhD in, like, a hard science. Not chemistry, but, like, anything else was okay. And I actually started out my degree with um, a biology major. I think it was a, no, bio, bio and CS. I kept switching majors. I was not sure what I wanted to do. So I was a physics at first, and then I switched to bio. Um, And then I was like, I'm just going to do math and computer science. And I think my dad was actually kind of disappointed because he thought, well, like, (laughs) but how are you going to go work for a pharmaceutical company? (laughs) Uh, Because that's where all the money was those days. I think, you know, he's changed his mind since then when he now that he knows that the tech industry is like super lucrative. But, yeah, I don't think I personally got that much parental pressure. I know a lot of people who have had way more than I did. I I also think you know I've I've always always grown up like I've always been kind of independent from my parents partly as a result of you know this early divorce and just a bunch of other family issues, and so I've never really thought like I needed to pay too much attention to what they thought. I think for me the reason that I valued STEM so much, is because I you know I read I read the room right like I looked at the economy I looked at pop culture and I it became very clear to me that people who had STEM degrees were going to be fine. Whereas people who were like, I don't know, had, had arts or humanities degrees, like they, they weren't. Um, and that f- I took as a sign that I was on the right path. I took it as a sign mm-hmm. that like, you know, doing well in STEM is just, it's just means I'm better than other people. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that, that's like, that was my kind of twisted understanding yeah. and the reason I went into it. And I, I would imagine that for a lot of people, it's probably a similar like kind of rational decision in recognizing that if you get a degree in sociology what are your employment prospects going to be um are are people going to be impressed by that degree you know if you want to like go on tinder and are you going to put that you have a phd <laughs> in sociology or are you going to like yeah do you want to have i don't know like do you want to have like a house and like a car or something like it's yeah, yeah. i think it's a trade-off that people have to make and You know, when I was young, I certainly just didn't have enough of a framework for understanding anything other than this is what the world says is valuable. Therefore, this is what you should do. I mean, I had maybe like a little bit of that when there was that whole Wall Street financial crisis. And um, I thought, okay, well, Wall Street's bad. That was that was the kind of message I got like Wall Street's bad in some way. So I don't want to work on Wall Street. But I didn't think of tech as being part of the same system in any way. I just thought, oh, tech is a completely different thing that just so happens to have similar features. Well, but don't worry, it's completely different. So, yeah, and, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if part of the reason a lot of Asian people go into STEM is just because it's a rational decision, right? It's, like, it is a path to being able to have a stable um, career. And also, it's, like, it's it's fun, right? Like, if, if you're the kind of person who's predisposed to this and you... I don't know, just, like, happen to be good at this, better than, than other subjects, then, like, why why not? Yeah. So I don't know if I have, like, a great answer, but definitely yeah. for me, it was partly just, like, a kind of a rational decision. Um, but also, you know, I, I, yeah, I've always, like, liked math and, um, and like, coding, but there isn't actually as much parental pressure as I think there there yeah. sometimes is. I
0: yeah. bet there's subliminal stuff, like your parents probably made you memorize math tables way faster than... Your classmates. That's, that's what happened to me. And, that's
1: funny. You know uh, what? I did that to myself. Um, I think, yeah, <laughs> I just, like, I internalized a lot of these pressures. And I, yeah. God, I'm just just starting to remember I would do all these, like, flashcard quizzes for myself. <laughs> um, I, like, memorized all the capitals. I memorized all these other random things wow. just because I was like, I want to be really smart. And yeah, yeah. maybe this was probably the result of, like, probably pressure from my dad because he's always placed huge... Uh, huge value on just like intelligence and hard work and so i probably got it from him but also i just made myself do it and yeah, yeah you know that it was it was just like really really weird and i it it worked out in a way like it it kind of helped me but also it probably broke me and just made me into like yeah. a deeply deeply like messed up <laughs> human being
0: <laughs> well this gets into this theme of meritocracy right that you bring up in the book you you talked about it earlier um it does sound like you know, and again, you have this, like, broader systematic critique. You mentioned one of my favorite authors, Emmanuel Wallerstein. For our listeners who um, are kind of new to this stuff, I want to give a like, quick little read. The book that Wendy recommends, Historical Capitalism, by Wallerstein. It's, like, 200 pages, maybe. It's really quick and nice and summarizes a lot of um, the, the, in my view, like, really nice interpretations or nice critical interpretations of capitalism. And you single out his critique of meritocracy and it does sound like you're kind of saying like maybe your, your notion of meritocracy was deeply, was perhaps a little bit cultural, right? And I, I, I sympathize, I think, looking now that I'm older and looking back at my family and the things that they, not just my parents, but like my extended family, they're all, you know, like your family, like came here for either business or a PhD in some sort of agricultural, chemical, physical science, right? And the emphasis was always grades, in a sort of sickening way right it was and it wasn't about money but it was about like quantitative um achievements right like test scores right and all that stuff um yeah so there's a way i think maybe meritocracy gets ingrained in us in cultural specific culturally specific reasons but more broadly um you know do you want to kind of expand or explain to the listeners what is the your critique of meritocracy or the one that you're Inspired by um, Wallerstein to to to, and how and how does that relate to the tech industry? Let's say.
1: Sure. Yeah. So what I liked about his definition and explanation of meritocracy is that he's explicitly calling it as a, as a sham. He's saying uh-huh. that you know this is a just like a way for elites to comfort themselves, basically. You know, by saying that they got their positions through this thing called merit, as opposed to a deeply unjust socioeconomic system, and. That I had never really come across something like that before, and it feels kind of silly now because, you know, now it's just very obvious to, like, I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast that meritocracy is just, like, something you can't take seriously. But definitely at the time, I mean, the tech industry has a particular obsession with this idea of meritocracy. You can see it in the way um, a company like GitHub can have a rug with the word merit—in meritocracy, we trust, I think— Something like that, and you know, in their fake Oval Office replica, um, and it was not ironic, right? It's like they actually believe they have a meritocracy, and it's just you know, go like stepping back a bit. Why does the tech industry think it is a meritocracy? Like, what evidence do they have to that fact other than wishful thinking, other than believing that you know people who are good at stuff are rewarded? I. It doesn't make any sense if you try to reason about it from first principles because, like, for an industry to function like a meritocracy, assuming that there is, you know, a positive definition of the word, it would have to be a place where the people in positions of power make decisions because they want to reward others for their merit. And it's like, okay, well, how does the tech industry actually work? Who has money? Um, I don't know, some, like, fail son of a third generation venture capitalist is, like is a startup founder or whatever some Stanford dropout is like given 30 million dollars to do something with his buddies are these people capable of making decisions based on merit or are they just kind of like irrational human beings like the rest of us but even worse because they their minds are corrupted by their proximity to money and and so you know like once you kind of have a critical lens of looking at the industry recognizing that it is not it's not this like utopian place that just doles out money to the people who deserve it the most. It is an industry that has a purpose, which is to make money for shareholders to get a return on capital for investors. And it. there are a lot of a lot of different ways it could function. But for the most part, it functions to ensure the steady stream of money, you know, going back to the source. And that can happen. That mo- is most likely to happen without this you know this meritocracy like it's probably not going to be one where you know someone who does a really good job but doesn't have a lot of bargaining power is going to be paid a lot they're probably going to be paid based on the bargaining power they have and it's just it just seems so i don't know like logical and common sense to think that of course it's not a meritocracy in any reasonable sense of the term of course the industry is going to exploit people and just going to pay people as little as they can get away with whereas um you know the people who say like the, the friends of the founders, the friends of the investors, their children, the people who who um, are mentored by them or like are similar to them, they're gonna get off really well because that's how the whole economic system has always worked.
0: Yeah. But so I guess it'd be useful to kind of like unpack what is an alternative way so a meritocracy would be would assume something like Facebook slash Twitter slash Google are successful because our products are the best and they were invented and and this in itself already proves that the founders are smarter than, you know, the rest of us because they came up with those products, right? What is a, what is an alternative explanation for why these companies are so successful if it's not meritocracy?
1: Mm. So I guess I would include my understanding of meritocracy to one where the money accrues to the people who, mm-hmm. you know, who deserve it the most. Right. Um, and As a sign you, of success. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, an alternate explanation is that the, the people who are in positions to capture money, capture the, the rewards of their fruit, it is because they're existing within this larger socioeconomic system that optimizes for them to be successful. Maybe not them specifically, but that definitely um, in- incentivizes certain behaviors and is set up to allow certain people based on factors other than merit to succeed. Because this is how, this is the driving engine of capitalism. This is how it works, right? Yeah. Um, it's this is like by design, and so I think the the whole meritocracy discourse in the tech industry is so frustrating. Because like if you just take a look at how capitalism works, it is so clear that there's nothing about it that's remotely meritocratic, and never has been. And that yeah. all this talk of meritocracy, it always only comes as a a mask as a as a way to cover up periods of deep inequality and like, you know, we, we need meritocracy discourse because otherwise then the, the little people they're they're going to be unhappy. If we just tell them that if they work hard, they can succeed, then, then maybe they just, they won't rebel. They won't, you know, take out their pitchforks. And so it kind of makes a lot of sense to me that there's so much meritocracy discourse, but it's also deeply frustrating because it just feels so, so superficial.
0: So there is a sense in which, um, Someone could have had the same ideas as any of these big companies, but they wouldn't have been in the position. Let's say to have access to the capital and to yeah. blow it up and all that stuff is, is sort of what you're saying, right? That,
1: totally. I, uh, I don't. I don't
0: know the. I don't know the biography of all of the all these tech companies, but you know, famously, you mentioned like the Harvard dropouts, the Stanford, the uh, Bill Gates went to, at, at least Westlake. Did he go to Harvard? He went to like the you know the most yeah. expensive school in Seattle. Right. So, it's not a coincidence that these people happen to wind up with all these this you know access to capital.
1: Yeah, and Elizabeth Holmes. I mean, the reason she was able to raise so much money is because it seems like she had, like, a family friend who was a venture capitalist, and it's just, once you have one person, it's a lot easier. And, you know, also, I think another point that's important to remember is that success under the current system is not necessarily, should not be taken as a measure of merit for for multiple reasons, but also because the things that are incentivized by this current system, they're not always good, right? Like, uh, a lot of the companies that have these amazing market capitalizations they're doing a lot of harm for the world and so we there are that's like another reason to not take this idea of meritocracy Mm. and face value because then you you know you internalize like a really weird way of what the world should be it's not just a matter of um, distributing resources slightly more fair and more fairly it's also a matter of thinking about what kind of products we want to build what kind of behavior should be incentivized and it's very hard to see anything positive in the the system we have now
0: yeah. Then for someone, you know, you're you know, in your book, then you talk about how you're trying to kind of unlearn this meritocratic conditioning you've had. And basically, like, how do you tell someone who's gone through years and years of education that being smart doesn't matter? I mean, is that, um, is that, is it so simple? Is, is that the challenge or, and like, what do you do with the fact that, you know, I'm sure we have a lot of listeners who think like, I worked really hard to get my degrees. Um, I'm proud of the fact that I know some special field, right? Um, so how are we supposed to feel, um, Mm -hmm. about all that if, once we, once we hear this blistering critique of meritocracy?
1: Yeah. Okay. So I would say that you should be, you should be proud of what you've achieved. You should be, I guess, like grateful that you've been able to achieve that, but also just proud, right? Like that's, you know, it, it's, it's nice to be proud of something you've done. Um, and then you should also recognize that you currently live under a world where there is no, where it's. Okay, the world was not constructed to make to allow you to flourish and to pursue your intellectual interests in a way that is fair and equitable. And so there are probably things that you want to do that you will never be able to do because no one's going to pay to do that. Because if you you know if you have a Ph.D. and like whatever, uh, are you going to be able to do what you want, or do you have to go work for Pfizer or Google or something, um, doing something you don't actually care about? so that's, that's one aspect. The other is like, isn't it kind of like, hang on, I'm trying to find a, find a way to say this. So it's, I don't, I don't, I think at least for me, it's not enough to be satisfied with my own achievements. I think I've started to recognize that, well, you know, my life depends on all these other people just, just, you know, mediated through the economy. Like I, I can't survive unless someone is, I don't know, um, like growing the food that I eat ensuring that you know everything is clean, everything just kind of keeps functioning. And, and so we all are so dependent on all these other people. And so like just from a purely selfish perspective, you probably want those people to be somewhat happy with the system. You want the people who are picking your vegetables and, you know, uh, drive, driving like the buses to be bought into the system just like you are. And so even if the system is working for you, even if you're really happy with your six-figure salary and and whatever, you also want it to work for everybody else because then if they if they decide that it isn't working for them and they do something about it, then, you know, you it just won't work for you either. And so from a selfish perspective, it's like there's that. But then from the non-selfish perspective, it's like you probably also care about other people. You want people to be happy and and so because for that reason alone it's worth thinking about how can the socioeconomic system be redesigned so that on the one hand you know people are allowed to pursue their intellectual interests but also everyone else everyone is like taken care of and people's um efforts are directed in a positive direction and so you know you're not just spending your time trying to help the US military like drop drones, more, drone bombs more efficiently, you're instead doing something that you think is useful for the world and that other people will benefit from. Time to say goodbye.